So chapter 2 opens with, after these things. We always, when we see a phrase like that, we say, after what things? It is true, if you've noticed, Pastor Michael does now have glasses up here. Uh, first service on Sunday, I was reading the text, and I read the entire text, and there were a few words that were blurry, and I was like, uh, and finally I decided I should probably surrender to the readers, which I do use privately, but I was fighting putting them out in public. So there it is. Anyway, I can't see you now, but I can see this. So anyway, should not get any applause whatsoever. But so here's what happens. This is chapter 1, verse 20. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Remember, they were all concerned because Vashti had disrespected the king. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script or language, to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. A decree went out. The queen just was deposed. The recommendation of the leadership was, hey, if she gets away with this, then all women in every household will think that they can do this to their husbands too. And the irony was that basically what the king accomplished by sending a decree to all 127 provinces is that he embarrassed himself even further. And he made a federal case out of something that could have been handled in a different way. You can't write a decree to get respect from people. You earn respect. Respect is given. It, it is a two-way street, but we, we know how that works. And so after these things, after this debacle after the drunken party after the king you know asking for her to come out and she refused him getting angry all that happened the decree goes out when the anger of king ahasuerus had subsided some of you who are new to the book of esther or maybe new to this study have xerxes in your uh, uh, version because xerxes is the greek version of this king's name so some of the versions have gone with the greek name some go with the Aramaic name, and I told you that there are those who believe that the closest Hebraic rendering of this name, remember it, it would move from Persian into Hebrew, is King Headache. Remember that? And so we did Pete Puma for you last week. How many of you remember Pete Puma? How many of you looked up Pete Puma just to see if I was even close? Praise the Lord, a few of you. Anyway, we won't go there. So when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti, chapter 2, verse 1, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now the king was reflecting on the happenstance, what had occurred in his court. He had calmed down and he started reflecting on what he had done. It's interesting to look at the order. He remembered what Vashti had done and then what he had decreed. But actually, if you remember what happened, he was the one that started this whole thing. She was having a separate party for the women in another part of the palace, and he's the one who said, I want her to come out, and I want her to show off her beauty. I want to parade my trophy wife before my drunken buddies. And she said no. So if there's a proper order here, 
it's you did this, king. You're the one that got the ball rolling. Then she said no. Then you made a decree, maybe because you were embarrassed, maybe because you were angry. Sometimes when we reflect on the order of things, we like to see it from our perspective, right? We, we often think, you know what, you're the one that started this. And then when we really think it through or we really revisit the bullet points, sometimes we're the one that took the first shot. We're the one that got the ball rolling. We need to be able to own that when we're guilty. We need to be able to say, you know what, I shouldn't have said that to start off with. I kind of pushed your button there, didn't I? I kind of got the ball rolling there, didn't I? I kind of I knew what to say so that you would respond and then I could blame you. That's pretty convenient when we do that as people. So here's the king. He's reflecting. He's calmed down. Usually when we calm down after an event like this, we have a lot of reflecting to do. And remember I told you last week that there are some believe that Vashti was killed. It wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't put it past the Persian Empire to kill her. Some believe that she was deposed or even banished. Was he thinking about restoring her? If she was still alive, did he think about maybe, you know what, I'd like to have her back. I'm sure he had some love for her, at least in some way. She, after all, she was the queen. Did he have regret? He had made a decree, and according to Persian law, he couldn't revoke his own law. We've seen that in some of the Old Testament books, that once a king was talked into something and it became a royal decree, technically he couldn't even reverse it himself. Have you ever had a moment in your life where maybe you said something in a moment of anger, or maybe under peer pressure, or getting bad counsel, and you made a decision, and, and it rolled out there, and now you get to live with the consequences of that bad decision and that bad counsel? We've all been there before. And so now he was reflecting, and he remembered her. You know, God has given every person a conscience. One of the, one of the uh, insights into the fact that you've been made in the image of God, we call that in the imago Dei, in the Latin, that you're an image bearer, back to the book of Genesis, is that you have a conscience. Conscience is two Latin words. It's con, C-O-N, science. And the word literally means with knowledge. Science is another word for knowledge. A synonym for science is knowledge. So science is actually the search for knowledge. Kind of wonder in our society if it's really that. But anyway. So to have a conscience is to see things with knowledge. And what is the knowledge about? What knowledge did God put in you since you're an image bearer? He put the ideas of right and wrong within your heart. In fact... Romans 2, you can look at verses 14 and 15 later, say that God has written his very law on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to that law. And it either accuses or excuses us. If we do what's right, our conscience won't bother us. If we do what's wrong, our conscience will bother us. And it is possible as the New Testament unfolds even to sear your conscience so that you, you violate your conscience so many times that even your conscience can become a bad guide for some. Your conscience must be informed by the Word of God. But if you don't sear your conscience, then your conscience, like Jiminy Cricket said, your conscience can be a pretty good guide. But he said, that's just the problem with people these days, right? They don't listen to their conscience. Sometimes we look at people and we wonder, do they have a conscience? 
people, even the king, with all the wrong things that he does, he thinks about what's happened here. From a chronological standpoint, for those of you who are interested in the dates, it was the third year of the king's reign, 483 B.C., when Vashti refused to come and parade her beauty before him and his drunken friends. Before the elevation of Esther, about four years passed. Esther is made queen in the seventh year of his reign, which is 479 B.C. We'll see that in uh, verse 16 and 17. So during this time, we have some information from a historian named Herodotus. And he says that this king was off fighting a disastrous war with the Greeks. In fact, he lost a major battle at Thermopylae and a couple of other skirmishes as well. So during this time, when Vashti is kicked out and, or deposed, he goes off to war. And we would conjecture that he's fighting war for about maybe three years. And each war he fights in from the extra-biblical sources that we have, he's defeated. He has a military defeat, a military deficit. And the writers of this time, or who are commenting on this time, say that he has lost respect in the eyes of his subjects. His, his people that serve him have lost respect for him. And when you lose, when you go off to battle, whatever your battle may be, and you get defeated, you lose, whether it's at work or in a relationship, or maybe you're an athlete and you've had a bad season, or uh, you're, you know, maybe you've just been dealing with health problems or injuries. It's hard. And sometimes when you can't do what you normally do, you have extra time to reflect, or sometimes you have to live in the bed that you made, or in the defeats, in the wake of the defeats. And this is where he was at this time. When Esther rises to the throne, the king is reeling from multiple defeats on many levels. So it's just kind of an interesting backdrop to see what's going on. And uh, the, in uh, Matthew 26, 52, Jesus says these words and. Where I'm going with this is that your sin will find you out. Uh, if you play fast and loose with people's lives, eventually it will come back to you. Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, which is a verse for this Sunday, says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And here's what we know. We know that Ahasuerus was an immoral man. In fact, when he returned from these battles, Herodotus describes the king's life after his military defeats as one of sensual overindulgence. He was spending suspicious time with some of the wives of his officers. This naturally, naturally produced anger and resentment in them. This king, who Esther rises to the throne was assassinated in his bedroom about 14 years after these events in 465 B.C. And I just put in my notes, your sin will always find you out. And a man who puts so much emphasis on the bedroom, and you're going to see how this unfolds in a moment, he was sexually overindulgent to say the least. In fact, he probably is singularly responsible for ruining the lives of hundreds and hundreds of women. And we'll talk about how this worked in a moment. It came back to bite him. And a couple of his own subjects assassinated him in the very place 
where perhaps he, you know, tried to find pleasure and, and escape or whatever it may be. And I don't have to tell you that that's where our society is right now. An overemphasis on sex, uh, a redefinition in many cases of it. Uh, what God created to be beautiful and right in its proper context has been muddied. And so this is the world into which Esther is thrust. And it's not a pretty world. The world of Persia was an ugly place where the powerful got their way. You served at the decree of the empire, and if the empire said, you jump, you say how high, or you died. These were exiles. These were captives in a foreign land. Persia was the most powerful uh, kingdom in the world at this time although Greece obviously was making its headway. And so, why is Esther here? Why is Mordecai here? One reason. The disobedience of their ancestors. I shared this story that we were in Israel in the spring, and we were on a rooftop overlooking Jerusalem, and we were hearing the prayer calls from the, the Muslim uh, shrine. And when we were looking at the area of Israel and we were just kind of contemplating where they were as a nation, how much atheism and agnosticism exists, how many different you know, religious persuasions are there and so forth, uh, there was another sister in Christ and myself that kind of had the same feeling at the same time, that this, today's Jerusalem, if you go, you may be shocked to see how uh, multicultural and how much pluralism and religious pluralism is going on there, but it is a result of a people who would not believe God. And if you can kind of take that idea and place it in the book of Esther, Esther is in the Persian court because her ancestors wouldn't believe God. Now, a person like you or I, we are not responsible for God before God for our parents' sins. The book of Ezekiel makes that clear. We don't pay the price. We're not judged for their sins. But we can certainly swim in the consequences of their sins. And so if they were rebellious toward God or didn't do things God's way, that reverberates out to us. How many of you have swam in those waters for a while? <laughs> Maybe all of us to some degree or another because of disobedience and dysfunction and so forth. So this was a crucial time for the king, and he had been humbled, and he was doing some deep thinking. He was thinking about what the queen had done, what he had done to her, as I mentioned apparently in that order, and I think he had a tinge of regret because he made the decision in all likelihood while he was drunk. He deposed the queen. He listened to these so-called advisors while under the influence of alcohol. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands. But I would imagine that this room has some folks in it that made some pretty poor decisions under the influence of alcohol. And I would venture to say that maybe other substances as well. Because, you know, it just seems like that is the path for many, many people to indulge in those areas, and then to reap the consequences of opening your life to be under the control of a substance like that. And so, here's the king. And the king's attendants who served him said, 
Well, they saw the king. You could tell he was down. They said, here's an idea. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Hey, king, you're down, man. We got to do something. Maybe they they even sensed that he was thinking about the queen and the decision that he made. So So somebody said, hey, let's go. We'll go get a bunch of young ladies from all over the kingdom and we'll bring them before the king. Now, at this point, it would have been really good if someone in the Persian court went to the king and said, Hey, king, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and make things right. The answer is not to go get another hundred concubines into your court. Because that's never going to satisfy. And that's the reason, the reason that you feel guilty right now is because of the decisions that you have made and the fact that you've lived the way that you've lived and you've abused people. If someone would have been in his ear, but that was risky. And it is risky to speak the truth to a person above you, especially a person who could kill you. <laughs> right? It's hard for us to tell the truth to a friend who's going the wrong direction or a person who may be compromising, but maybe we see their compromise is not as bad as other people's compromises. So for the sake of a friendship or political correctness or you name it, we don't tell them the truth. But Ephesians 4.15 says we are to speak the truth in love. See, do you really love someone if you won't tell them the truth? Or... Do you love yourself too much to do what's called the practice of non-ruckabotis? I don't want to ruck at a boat. That's the Latin or the Italian. So you live your life with this non-ruckabotis mentality. Whatever I do, I know ruck at a boat. So you never rock the boat, but people around you are rocked. (laughs) Because you you don't speak the truth. Now, there's a way to speak the truth. We all need to speak the truth in humility and gentleness and respect because we know we could fall in a microsecond, too. I don't go to somebody and, you know, get the biggest Bible I have and, hey, dummy, hit them over the head with it. Wake up and fix your hair while you're at it. No, that's not the proper approach. You're probably not going to get a lot of positive vibes from that. But if you pray... And if your intention is to save that person from further harm, if your intention is restoration of their life, I think in the end they'll appreciate it even if in the moment it's not comfortable. In fact, in in the book of Daniel, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.27, break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Listen to this. Break away from your sins. Daniel said that to Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man alive at that time. And you know, a year later, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God because he wouldn't listen. And he went out and he started eating grass like an animal. But a year before that, Daniel had warned him, if you repent, you can spare yourself this stuff. It would be nice if not everybody has to learn things the hard way. (laughs) And so the advice that was being given to the king was that there needed to be a new queen and Vashti needed to go, and it was coming mainly from a man named Mamukin. 
It's one of my favorite new names in all the Bible. Mamukin, I just like saying it. What's up, Mamuk? Well, Mamukin, there's evidence that from the seven closest, closest advisors to the king, that the Persian kings would get their wives from those close-knit families. And so Mamukin may have had ulterior motives because he was thinking if Vashti was deposed, if she was kicked out, and one of his family members married the king, guess what that would do for him? Do you know that when people give, your, give you advice, please listen. If they're not a person that is godly and has your best in mind, it is hard for people not to give you advice with a tinge of a selfish motive. So be careful who you get advice from. Because it's hard for people not to weave self into the advice that they even give to you. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever heard yourself giving advice, walked away from it and went, you know what, that was a lot about me. Hey, if you do this, I could personally benefit. We don't say that out loud. And so that's what was going on. If somebody tr truly cares about you, they will give you what Proverbs 15, 31 calls a life-giving reproof. He whose ear listens to a life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise, Proverbs 15, 31. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility, Proverbs 15, 31 through 33. It would have been nice if someone in that court had sat down with the king and just said, hey king, I don't think that this is the right thing to do. I don't think that you need another relationship right now. I think maybe you need to focus on God. But there was nobody there. Or maybe there was somebody there who knew the living God but was afraid to say something. Now God's going to be over all of this. And so we notice in verse 3, they say, Let the king appoint uh, overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women and let their cosmetics be given them. The attendants proposed a plan for the decree to go out. All 127 provinces, all these young virgins, unmarried young ladies, eligible young ladies, were to be brought to the capital of the empire for the king. And he already had a large harem. There's a later king, Xerxes II, that the extra-biblical records tell us that he had 360 concubines. 360 women in a harem just waiting for him to call upon them. Let me see, quick calculation. If you take a Jewish year, 360 days, that's a different woman every night. And then the story says that once he had them, and as one writer put it, deflowered them, he would replace them all with new virgins. So that one man's sensual uh, desires ruined hundreds and hundreds of lives. I was reading another author who said, just so that you understand the fullness of this, Herodotus also reports that 500 young men, or young boys, were gathered each year and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. Let me say that one more time. 
500 young boys per year castrated and put into the service of this king. And for this one man? For what? Because everybody's got to be at his beck and call? That's what it was about. You serve the empire. And so how many people who had dreams about a family and, you know, a fairy tale wedding and, 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 you know, generations to come from that had their lives ruined by this one man who had power and authority? And how many people in our culture go down the path of the Persian Empire and buy into the lie that it's all about one-night stands and hookups and swiping right on this person's picture so you can go this and you don't have to have any entanglements or attachments to that person. You can just have a one-night stand with them. No, I got news for you. Every person that you're with intimately will be written on your soul because that's the way God designed it. God designed that intimacy would be much more than a physical act, but that it would be something spiritual, and even some people might say mystical. God designed it so that two would become one in that intimate act, and they would find beauty and depth of relationship. But when this kind of scene happens in the Persian court, and all it is about is a person's pleasure and just using and abusing people, Well, it churns out a bunch of empty souls walking around who are dead even while they live. She who gives herself to wanton pleasure, 1 Timothy 5 says, is dead while she lives. Can I put it this way? She's dead on her feet. You can look into people's eyes today and see it. Hopelessness and despair because all the avenues by which they have been instructed to pursue all the friends that were saying, oh yeah, this is the way to go. This is the way to do it. Produce nothing. Nothing for the soul. In fact, every time you do this, your soul pays the price. And Jesus said, what would a person give in exchange for their soul? Apparently a whole lot. Now they gave these women cosmetics i have absolutely no comment on that <laughs> but actually the the language means this was like a beauty regiment and it was a beauty treatment that they did now imagine these are the most beautiful women in the kingdom and they give them a year of a beauty treatment before they can even see the king now i know you ladies take a little longer than guys to get ready in the morning right Now, this could open up a whole can of worms right now. We might need to schedule some extra counseling. Pastor Chris, be ready, because I'm going to talk about this. It's just a mystery. We'll just leave it in the mystery category. right? But, But what's with this year? What are you talking about, a year? Well, this is what it says. It says, let the young lady who pleases the king be, uh, be queen in place of Vashti. Let the, and the matter please the king, and he did accordingly. So kind of let it be written, let it be done. Later we'll see that they did a year of this beauty regiment. I mean, who does this guy think he is? Women have to prepare for a year? Just to be with him for a night? Well, that's kind of what it was. What kind of drama do you think was in the palace among these ladies? Do you think that this was the Persian version of The Bachelor? Huh? 
right? And, and some of you are laughing because you, you record it and you watch it with your friends and you eat popcorn while you do. And there's a girl over here, and they're kissing over here, and, and it's a disaster. <laughs> but it's entertaining. And so all these women brought into this situation. King says, he's been thinking about what he did, and he says, yeah, this is a great idea. Yeah, let, let's do it. Now the camera shifts in the narrative. Now there was a Jew, he's everything opposite of King Ahasuerus. There was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai. The son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now the Kish here is not Saul's father because Saul's father would have lived 1100 BC. That would have been 600 plus years before this time. But this, this particular line connects to the deportation under Nebuchadnezzar. But what it does tell us is that Mordecai's connection is to the tribe of Benjamin. And he has a very, he is very Jewish. That's what we need to see. The narrator is telling us. Uh, he is a Jewish man. But he has a, uh, the Mordecai or Mordecai is a Hebraized form of a Babylonian name called Marduka. And so he has a Persian or Babylonian name. The name means little man or man of Marduk or even worshiper of Mars. Some of you may be saying, why does this Jewish hero in the story have a Babylonian name after a Babylonian god? Because when you were exiled into a foreign land as a slave, what did they try to do? They tried to assimilate you. And one of the first things they would do is give you a new name. If, for example, if your name was Daniel... And your name means God is my judge. The true God is my judge. They renamed Daniel to Belteshazzar. And you had Daniel's friends. You had Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they got new names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All after gods that were in Babylon. False gods. Now, did, did Daniel and his three friends worship the true God? Yeah, that's what we learn in the book of Daniel. But they had Babylonian names because they were trying to assimilate them into the empire. And that's what was happening with this man. He believed in the true God, but he was given a name that reflected this culture. The only time that Marduk is ever mentioned in Scripture is by Jeremiah. This is what it says. Jeremiah 50, verse 2. Declare and proclaim among the nations. Proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. So God talks about Marduk. And uh, the name of this famous Bible hero is after this false god. And so... We see his line there. He's from Benjamite stock from the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. Now, he had been taken into exile from Jerusalem. Uh, this is talking about his family members now. With the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah. 
Another name for him is Jehoiachin. You can write down 2 Kings 24, 14, and 15. But when the uh, king of Babylon took the captives, he took the king of Judah, the one over the area of Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had them exiled. So basically, you have a kind of a great-grandfather here to the person we're talking about, Mordecai, to tell us the backstory of how he ended up in the Persian court. Everybody with me? He's Jewish, but he ended up here because his family members were taken by Nebuchadnezzar 100-plus years before and put into this situation. However, there was a decree by Cyrus in 539-538 B.C., so about 60 years before this, that allowed the Jews to do what? Go back to their homeland and rebuild. And the families that were still in Persia were families that decided to not go back but to stay. Why? I don't know. There could be a positive and a negative argument. The positive argument is that Jeremiah says that they were to plant houses and build and, and be a positive citizen even where they were exiled. But the negative argument is that they didn't heed the call of God to go back to the homeland because maybe it was too hard or maybe they had just settled in the Persian Empire. And it's easy to settle. Some of you may have settled tonight in a job or a situation. You felt a call on your life. You knew that you were supposed to be somewhere else, but you've settled for the sake of whatever, the bills or whatever it may be. It's easy to do. And so we learn what happened, why he ended up in this place. If you want to uh, see the, a little bit more about this, read Jeremiah 24, 1 through 7, where God talks about, good figs and bad figs in the land and them being deposed into this foreign land. And God's going to do good to the good figs and among them are Mordecai and Esther. Now Mordecai was bringing, verse 7, up Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. But her name here in the Persian court is Esther. She, Esther, uh, notice he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady, Esther, was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now we learn a little bit more. This is kind of like when you begin to watch a movie and the characters are introduced very early in the story so you can see who they are, kind of learn how they ended up in this situation. That's what we're getting. We've learned about the king. We've learned about the queen. We've looked up, learned about the court. We've been introduced to Mordecai, and now we're introduced to the one for whom the book is named, that is Esther. Esther is a Babylonian name, and it comes after the love goddess Ishtar. Hadassah is a Hebrew name, which means myrtle. If you've studied the Bible or heard some stuff about the myrtle tree before, a myrtle is an evergreen tree with, a dark with dark glossy leaves, white flowers. The leaves, flowers, and berries of the myrtle were used for perfume and seasoning for food. The myrtle tree had a religious significance for the Jews. It was a symbol of peace and joy. In fact, the myrtle is a part of the lulav, uh, a group of branches or flowers used during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so her name means myrtle. And it speaks of beauty and grace, and that's who she is. She's beautiful in face and form. She's a beautiful woman through and through. She's, she's pretty, gorgeous, etc. And this is what we're introduced to. 
But in this world, beauty wasn't always a positive thing. Because if you were beautiful, you might get the attention of the enemy, and then they might want to bring you into their own court. If you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of the Ten Commandments, how many of you have seen that? Uh, there's an there's a older Jewish man in the mud pits, and a Jewish woman's basically you know, taken in by them, and he says, you abuse our women, and, and he, he says, beauty is a curse for us, and then they kill him in the mud pit because he speaks out against them. But this is who she is. She's caught between two worlds. Her name is Hadassah Myrtle, but she's named after Ishtar, the love goddess, because she's in the Persian court. And the decisions of you know, former generations reverberate. Her mom and dad are dead. And we learn something about Mordecai now that's interesting. He's the opposite of King Ahasuerus. Mordecai is a selfless man. Mordecai has taken in Esther, adopted her into his family as his own daughter. He loves her. He, he is a selfless man. Many of you have opened up your hearts and homes and uh, taken in ones who were not biologically yours because of love. And it's an awesome picture of the gospel. And so it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, into the custody of Hegei, that Esther was taken. The words there could imply force, but we don't know for sure. To the king's palace, notice, into the custody of Hegei, who was in charge of the women. All of a sudden, because Mordecai had a position somewhere in the Persian government, uh, Esther lived with him, so she was around close by where the edict was given, and she was taken. Did she fight? Did she resist? Did she cry? We don't know. The Bible is absolutely silent. Did anybody resist? Did anybody try to run away? Were they taken with swords and clubs into custody? We just don't know. But all of a sudden, she's living her normal everyday life. I don't know what her normal everyday life looked like, but all of a sudden, horses and and, you know, uh, military guard pull up and they start plucking up young gals. You might imagine anywhere from 13 to 17, 18 years old in there. And they start grabbing them off the streets, one by one by one. And maybe they're told as they're taken, the king is looking for a new queen and you will be brought into the harem and maybe you'll be cho chosen, but if not, you will stay in the harem as a concubine for the king. Would that be a little devastating? I don't know what kind of expectations Esther had of a life, but could you imagine that maybe there was a young man somewhere in the Jewish community that she already loved? Maybe a young man that had expressed some interest in her? Maybe uh, the guardian Mordecai was talking to that young man's parents. We don't know. We're, I'm speculating, but I would imagine that she had hopes and dreams. I would imagine that she thought about a fairy tale wedding, that she thought about a man that she could love and a family that she could have with a man in her future. And now to be taken by the Persian king to be one of his dolls that he plays with, if I can put it that way, when he wants to, tragic i would imagine that she was devastated she was taken she was put into custody and now she's in this different world application 
God can take our pain and our broken dreams and work out something for his glory and for good. In fact, the Bible says God works all things together for what? For good to those who love him. But do you hear that verse? He works it all, all things together for good, but it wasn't necessarily all about Esther's good. What was it about, folks? It was about the good of the people. See, Esther became a vehicle or a channel or a vessel by which the nation would be saved. So sometimes when we quote Romans 8.28, we immediately put it in the context of my good. And I believe God wants to do good for us. In fact, every good and perfect gift is from above. Amen? However, it's not always about your good. It could be about somebody else's good where God is weaving the tapestry together by which he can use you as a vehicle to reach out with his love, even through maybe your own pain. It's hard. But humility's expression is precisely what our King Jesus modeled, that we are to esteem others, you ready, as more important than ourselves. Wow. Is that the worldview you're getting today? That you're to esteem others as more important than you. And it's captured in the words of Hadassah when she says, If I perish, I perish. See, this is what Jesus modeled for us. And in fact, this is where we find life because it is more blessed to give than to receive. But we don't believe it. Because if we did, we'd be doing a lot more giving and we'd be looking out for a lot more best interests of others than ourselves. Amen? I know it's hard truth, but here it is. And so you can see how Mordecai is so different. He's contrasted with his pagan king. Now the young lady, Esther, thrust into this world, we'll have to move quickly. She pleased him, that is the eunuch in charge, and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Apparently, she got put in the area with the A-team. Now I have the A-band and the B-band. Well, apparently she was part of the A-band. And, and somehow she impressed this servant. It could be that she was obedient, she was sweet, she was obviously beautiful. But overarching theme is it's the favor of God on her. Joseph found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. See, when God's grace is upon you, it's not necessarily about you, it's about him. It's about what doors he's opening for you in certain contexts. And so he quickly elevates her, speeds up. Uh, her process gives her the royal treatment if you will and the hand of God is on a very bleak situation now Esther did not make known her people or her kindred she didn't say she was Jewish for Mordecai her guardian or her dad had instructed her that she should not make them known I don't know why but Mordecai having been older and being in the king's court probably saw building anti-semitism and he probably thought her chances will diminish in this situation if she reveals her Jewishness. And some of you 
are in companies and families and situations and friendships where you've hid your Christianity. You are a secret agent Christian. And you sing the song. Right? You don't want people at the company to know. You, you silently pray over your food because, you know, out loud prayer could be risky. And and look, in some settings, if you, if you reveal that you're a Christian, it could cost you, right? We all know. And in some places, you might be surprised that there's a bunch of other secret agent Christians in the same company with you. Now, every day, Mordecai walked back and forth, picture pacing, in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Can you imagine his heart here he is you know he's he's now her father he's adopted her and he's got some formal position he paces back and forth and he's trying to get information he wants to know how she's doing he was watching over esther but someone much higher was watching over all of them and i would imagine even though the bible doesn't say this that he was praying william temple is reputed to have said when i pray coincidences happen and when i don't they don't, close quote. Have you ever noticed when you pray, more coincidences seem to happen? Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, beauty regiment, the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Now, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. But this is a picture of excess. This is a picture of too much. One writer says, It's been suggested that the women may literally have spent their time in these elements, with ointments being applied by means of a chemical bath or fumigation. How many times do you need to be fumigated with the spices and the, and the oils? Oh, one more time. My skin's not quite soft enough. And this is how they prepared for their interview. Excess. Sound a little bit like America? We, we focus so much time on the outside, and God says, I don't look at outward appearance, I look where? At the heart. Now the young lady, and we're giving, get, getting an overview of what happened, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. I don't know what that included. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem. That's the B team, apparently. This was the place of the concubine. To the custody of that guy, that shaggy right there. That's Shaj, Shajgaz. He's a lot like Mamukin. Now he's my favorite, Shajgaz. Anyway, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines she would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So get this. You guys have heard of this, the movie that the TBN network did one night with the king. Kind of this, this is the basis of it. And the women prepared for a year and then they went in and we have to say it, they were probably intimate with him because that's what he wanted. And so they would go in and he would be with them and they would stay for the evening and they would leave in the morning and be next, 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 next. 
And these were young women who had been taken. I'm sure, you know, maybe some of them in that culture were excited at the opportunity to be the queen. But I'm sure for a lot of them, they were devastated. And so, everything is for the empire. There's two schools of argument. One school says Esther is simply one more beautiful virgin that the king will deflower. But there are other scholars who argue that something happened on the night that Esther went in where the king immediately fell in love with her and she did not give herself to him. I don't know. And I will leave that to your own study, but here's what happens. Now, when the turn of Esther, and we're reminded of who she is, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, you see, no matter what the empire does, it can't rob her of her family, her community, and her true identity. And so I think the writer right here says, no matter what's going to happen now, please know that Esther is Esther. And she will always be attached to the family. And she will be always attached to the covenant. Always attached to her Jewishness. And no matter what somebody has done to you, if they've robbed you of something, if you made a mistake and you feel like you can't get back, I have good news for you. There's always a way back in Jesus Christ. Amen? And if there wasn't, I wouldn't be standing here right now. Because I made a pretty good disaster of my own life. Doing everything the wrong way. And so, here's what happens. Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, uh, 15, who had taken her as daughter, we, we see now the close relationship, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. She got his advice and she followed it. He knew the king well, so she, she went with that. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Once again, there's a bigger hand over this, the hand of God, the favor of God. And so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now Vashti was deposed, I think, in the third year. This is how we get four years have gone by. He's fighting battles, so time's gone by. A year of the beauty treatment. So this is the seventh year of his reign. It's the winter time. It corresponds to our December or January. Even in this part of the world, it's wet. It's rainy and cold, kind of like tonight. That's the weather outside. And Esther is brought in for her time with the king. Can you imagine what she must have felt like? The palpitations of her heart. I'm sure she was probably praying, asking for God's mercy. I, I don't know, but there's a lot that we have to speculate on or at least try to fill in the details. But it says in the next verse, and the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The way the language, the way I see the language is the moment she walked into the room, the king loved her. Y'all believe in love at first sight? You believe that God can do that? You know, we've been having some discussions around the office and, you know, we counsel people, all right, take your time, you know, do your premarital counseling, take some, and then we learn about some of the relationships. It's like, yeah, we knew each other two weeks and we got married. It's like, what? But then they've been married for decades, so apparently 
There is such a thing as love at first sight. We don't recommend, by the way, a two-week, whatever you want to call it. but (laughs) But he saw her and he loved her. He was, to him, she was a ray of sunshine in his life. Maybe we could imagine that the moment she walked in the room, he just sensed something different and he loved her. And he took the crown and he made her the queen. Can you imagine being Esther? Heart pounding. I don't know. Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me. You walk in, this guy loves you. He takes the royal crown and you're the queen of the Persian Empire. From a nowhere girl to the queen. Can you imagine that? Wow. And so the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet. She even has a holiday. Can you imagine that? By the way, you're the queen now, and we have a national holiday named after you. It's Esther Day, as opposed to yesterday. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> he threw a bit. <laughs> yeah. Some of you guys are slow, but you know, it's, it's late. Anyway, for all his princes and his servants, he also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. This could mean uh, a reprieve on taxes. It could mean a holiday off work, even off a military service. And there is Esther. Can you imagine? She takes a deep breath. The local news shows today is the holiday in the light of Esther. <laughs> Finally, the king's kind of happy again. Yay! Pass me the donuts, you know. <laughs> Listen to Ian Duguid. He says, here is hope for all those who find themselves in difficult circumstances in the present because of their past sin and compromise. Here is hope for people who married a non-Christian husband or wife, even though they knew it was wrong. The person who chose a career based on all the wrong motivations or who wasted a lifetime in pursuit of the wrong goals can discover that God is sovereign even over those sinful choices and wasted opportunities. Perhaps he has brought us to where we are today so that we can serve him in a unique way. If so, that doesn't make the wrong decision and sinful actions right. But it should cause us to give thanks to God that he is able to form beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. Past failures do not write us out of a significant part of God's script in the future. And so we wind down with these words. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, I don't know why, some believed to go home, some believed these were new ones coming in. Then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, which would indicate the gate is prominent, so he has some sort of official position. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her. She was submissive, and she had done as she had done when under his care. So she didn't say that she was Jewish. In those days, if we ask the question, what about Mordecai? While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials or eunuchs from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on the king, on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai. He told Queen Esther. Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both, these two men, hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. As we wrap up, 
we get a little backstory into something that will matter five years from this point. It's written in the, the Chronicles of the King, and it's this. Mordecai saves the king's life. And later, this is going to become a huge part of the story. But for now, Mordecai gets word, and these two guys, uh, this is from the MacArthur buddy, uh, buddy. <laughs> the MacArthur Study Bible. He says, these men were executed on the gallows. Persian execution consisted of one being impaled. It is likely that they, the Persians, were the inventors of crucifixion. Close quote. These two guys got impaled. And just at the right time, Mordecai was there under the providential hand of God because God is working all things together for good. Here's a thought I had. One day we're going to end up at the king's banquet. And the bride that he has prepared by the washing of his word to be spotless and blameless before him, the one that has loved us to the end, we will see him face to face. And the Bible says in multiple places that we will get a crown, whether it's literal or not, I don't know. But here's what we're told. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, says Paul. James says, you will receive the crown of life when you endure trials. In Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And we have this idea from the scriptures that we will cast our crowns before him. But the beauty treatment that God's doing to prepare you for that meeting is a beauty treatment of changing you from the inside out. And the reason that he wants you there one day is not for his, it is for his glory, but it's for your good. It's not to hurt you or to abuse you. It's because he's always loved you. And he's preparing you in this lifetime for that meeting when you will get that crown and cast it at his feet and say, thank you, Lord, for inviting me to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will put a crown on our head. Isn't that amazing? And he's just asking one thing of us. To walk with the eyes of faith, to be faithful. To even look at our mistakes as opportunities to not go back there and to serve him.